So our, our passage today has us look at uh, this family, Eli and his sons. But before we do that, uh, it's worth sort of looking at this kind of, uh, it's almost like an update, an epilogue on the story of Hannah. Uh, a nice one, really. Uh, if you guys remember, uh, Hannah is from chapter 1, an Israelite woman who didn't have any children. And she prays before the Lord, asking that the Lord would give her a child, that she would be able to dedicate this child to the Lord, uh, that he might serve the Lord at uh, the temple in Shiloh. And we uh, remember in chapter 1, we learned that that happens. Uh, she has a son. His name is, she names him Samuel, and she falls through on her promise. Uh, as soon as he's able, he goes and begins uh, an apprenticeship, you might say, to be a, a priest at the temple. Uh, and so Hannah, we're told in our passage, visits him every year. And you can imagine just the, the sense of, of um, the love she has for him because she brings a robe every year. But, you know, there's a loss here, too, as well. She's not able to be there with him every day. And yet, um, we, we see the sense of, of her willingness to, to submit to what God wants, her willingness, her, desire, her deep desire to do what God wants by, by really following through on what she promised in, the, in her prayer. And we're told Eli prays a blessing over her, and this happens, it looks like, looks like every year this is happening. So for a couple of years, she's going up, and Eli offers a blessing. He's the chief priest at the time, one of the leaders of Israel, plays a blessing that she would have more children, and it turns out she does. Um, and what a huge blessing. And as we're saying, I think it's unexpected. As we said, she's been calling year after year. As far as we know, Samuel was it. That's all she, would, she expected to have. Uh, and it seems like she was settled in that. Her prayer in chapter 2 begins with this. She says, my heart exalts in the Lord. So Hannah had learned a sense of peace with the Lord, even over these many years. Um, and yet, here is this welcome blessing. And children many years later, and for that, we, we thank God for God's grace in, in her life and, and grant her the, the, the more children. We're also told Samuel continues to grow and mature. Verse 26, he grows and matures in favor with the Lord and also with man. And so some interesting things happen with Samuel, and there'll be more to hear from him. His story picks up in the next chapter. Uh, but as I said, this morning we look at one particular family, Eli and his two sons. And they're the current priest of Israel. The priests in Israel were, were meant to represent uh, the people before God, uh, to lead the people in worship of God, to to show the people, here's what it is to know God and to follow God and to guide them in what it is as a people to worship God uh, and to intercede really for the people, uh, um, uh, for the people before God. So really important role. There's a big problem though. Um, they are corrupt. They are corrupt leaders. And here's the Bible's initial comment uh, on the two sons in particular. We're told in verse 12, now the sons of Eli were worthless men. They did not know the Lord. So these guys, they're supposed to be the spiritual leaders of Israel, right? The ones called to lead the people to God, and yet they did not know God. They didn't have an authentic, real, ongoing relationship with God. And so rather than leading out of obedience to what God would want for his people, they're leading out of what they want, what they can get from the people of God. And so uh, the result of that is abusive leadership. They're using their power and their authority to take advantage of the people. And that's what we'll be sort of thinking about this morning. Um, there's a lot of, I think, more understanding and, and even discussion about abuse and how it manifests itself, especially from leaders in different contexts, much needed. But one of the things that, that's important to mention here is that this isn't like a new problem, right? It's not like all of a sudden in the last couple decades, like abusive leadership is an abusive communities have formed. What we see is that's always been around, and what we want to look at this morning from our passage is maybe ways of identi better identifying it. What are some tendencies 
of abusive leadership and abusive cultures and communities. Uh, what are the things that, that happen? And by learning from what happens, we sort of want to know what we don't want to do. How do we steer away from those type of tendencies? So that's what we're looking at. There's three tendencies of abusive leadership that we see in this passage from this particular family, from Eli and his two sons. And the first one is greed. Abusive leadership is greedy. People want more for themselves. They want more for themselves. They want the best for themselves, even if it means taking advantage of other people, even if it's at the expense of the people they're supposed to be caring about and leading. So this describes, if you look down what you see and, and, and read in verses 12 to 16. So here's what's happening. And here, the focus here is particularly on Eli's sons in this section. Eli's sons are sending their servant out to the people while they're doing their sacrifices as part of what they would eventually have as sort of a meal together. And this is part of the whole sort of worship of God as they're sacrificing to God and some of what they sacrificed, they would share a meal together as a family. We heard mention of this back in chapter one. Uh, so Eli's sons are sending their servant out to take some of the food that's being sacrificed for themselves. Now, that in and of itself is not unusual. Because one of the things you remember, this is back in the agricultural community, agricultural society, agricultural uh, economy. So every Israelite family has their own land. You live off your land. You live off what you raise, what you grow. That's, that's how it happened. Everyone did that. Except, everyone had their own land except for the priests, those who served at the temple. Their whole commitment was serving the Lord at the temple, leading the people in worship of God, representing the people before God. So they're the only ones who don't have their own land, which is a problem if you're in an agricultural society. So God made provision for them. He made provision for them in his law. We look in Leviticus and Deuteronomy. The provision was the priests were allowed to take some of what was being sacrificed and use it for food to provide for themselves. But here's the key word there, some, right? Certain portions. God was really clear. Here's what you can take for yourself. What we're seeing here from Eli's sons is basically just blatantly defying that. They're sending their guy, and he's sticking his fork into the pots as they're being cooked, and he's taking, it says he's taking what he wants, but the implication here is he's taking the best stuff. He's kind of looking around, he's like, oh, that's good, and, and, and grabbing it. Right, we see, um, and we know this, in verse 29, it's, uh, it says that they were taking the choicest parts for themselves. This isn't a random poke. It was, what's the best here? And I'm going to take it for myself. And which remember, part of the sacrifice, part of worship of God, one of the things that back then they would sort of tangibly do, you say you want to commit yourself to God, here's a tangible way to do that. You sacrifice the, 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 the things that you have before God and even some of the best of what you have. It's a way of saying what I'm doing physically represents what I want to do in my life. And they are, they are directly violating that by taking this for themselves. And it doesn't stop there. It's like they're almost like, this isn't good enough. We need to get more. And so we're told in our passage that they, they were even going before the, 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 the stuff would be start, started being boiled and cooked. One of the things also was in God's law was that before you sacrificed it, you were supposed to burn all the fat off the, the, the meat that was uh, being offered up for sacrifice. Part of it, again, another way of showing your commitment, your following of the Lord. We're told here Eli's sons are having their servant come and take the meat before even that happens. And people push back on that, where it said if someone objected, which implies that people are like, I'm pretty sure that's not in the law, guys. <laughs> what, what does it say here? It says they threaten to take it by force. All right, we're doing this, whether you like it or not. And one of the things to notice here is that this wasn't just happening a couple times. Verse 14 tells us this is systemic sin, systemic injustice. Verse 14, this is what they did at Shiloh to all the Israelites who came there. So just imagine what it feels like to, to suffer under this 
abusive leadership expressed in greed. Imagine you're coming to worship God. Here's an important sacred moment. You're coming to, to be before the Lord and to offer what you have before God. And these guys are forcing you to violate that. Forcing you to go against that. You're unable to, to show your full commitment to God. You're forced to join in the greedy selfishness of these priests. So again, what we're seeing here is abusive leadership showing itself in greed. And what happens when that happens is, I mean, the result of that is, of course, what that means is here's people getting way more for themselves, and that means a lot of other people are being overlooked, being dismissed, being taken advantage of. So think of what happens in a community where there's people who are, being, who are getting less so that others get a whole lot more. And it's your leaders who are doing this. Not only that, think of what it does within the culture, within the community. It begins to tell people, well, this is how you get ahead. This is how you achieve, by making sure you get what you want for yourself. And I think we can say that this is what was happening in that day. We know this is happening during the time of judges. This is towards the tail end of that time period. And during the time of judges, uh, Israel had these tribal leaders that were called judges. And there's a comment the Bible makes about how it was like during that time period. And the comment was this. Everyone did what was right in their own eyes. That means everyone was, was greedy. Everyone was saying, I'm going to do what I want to do. Where does that come from? From a lot of different places. But one thing for sure we can say is they were seeing it from their leaders. They're seeing it from guys like this, Eli's sons. Everyone did what they wanted. Here's what I want. I'm going to take it. It's abusive. And obviously it results in, in people being stomped on and overlooked. It results in a community that's only really looking out for themselves. So abusive leadership is greedy. Number two, another second tendency of abusive leadership is immorality. So verse 22, Eli was very old and he kept hearing all that his sons were doing to all Israel and how they lay with the women who were serving at the entrance to the tent of meeting. So these guys were using their position to have sexual relationships with the women who were there, who were serving there. Almost like treating it like their personal harem, right? This is, they're using their positions of authority to sleep with all these different women. Abusive leadership has a tendency, will often look like blatant immorality. And now let me sort of be clear, when I say morality, I'm not talking about like a kind of a fundamentalist definition of, immoral, of morality. So sometimes people think, oh, you know, I'm a moral person, and really it's just a list of very superficial stuff. Right? Here's all the places I attend and the money I donate. Like that's, that's, that's a very sort of, that's a really superficial definition. It's not really what we're talking about when we say morality. Maybe let's say biblical morality. When we say biblical morality, I mean, yeah, we are talking about a standard. We're talking about a right and a wrong. But maybe a way of saying, what, do we, what does it mean to be a moral person is to say, well, what's at the very heart of God's standard? What's at the core of what it is to do right and wrong before God? Well, Jesus himself tells us, here's the heart of God's standard. Here's the heart of God's law, and it's this. This is Matthew. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the greatest and most important command. The second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and prophets depend on these two commands. You can read the whole Old Testament, and you should. It's good to read, but you want the Cliff Note version? You want, you, want to, you want to say, okay, what will help me pass the test? Here it is. Love God fully. Be committed fully to God. Love other people. Be fully committed to other people. The heart of what it means to be a good moral person is this, a full commitment to God and to others that shows itself in love and care for one another. Love and care, attention towards God, love and care, attention towards one another. This is the heart of what it is. And so 
Immorality is a violation of that. I mean, I say all the other things that we think about what it means to be moral, and there's other things too, Ten Commandments, other things. Those are, those, are, those are important, but they flow out of this. Faithfulness to God. Shown in saying, I love God so much, here's why I'm going to live this way and do these things. I love and care about the people around me. Here's why I don't lie and steal and cheat and do all these other different things. Right? That's what it's about. That's at the very core of it. And that's why, too, I think this particular violation, not just immorality, but sexual immorality, is one of the most immoral things we can do. It's one of the deepest violations of God's law. If you read the Bible, the Bible tends to put a lot of attention, especially when people and leaders are sexually immoral. It says this is particularly bad. And why is it? Why is it put at attention? Is, the Bible is not being prudish. The Bible is not against sexual faithfulness, right, in the context of marriage. But it's unfaithfulness, unfaithfulness that especially cuts against God. And why is that? Because that's one of the things that involves, I mean, think about what sexual morality really is. It's unfaithfulness. It's betrayal. It's a breaking of commitment. Those are the things at the heart of what it is to follow and know God. At the very heart of following and knowing God, the very heart of God's morality is faithfulness to him. And so when we are unfaithful in the relationships God gives us, well, it's almost, a, it's like throwing poison into the very heart of what it is to follow God. Poison in the very heart of the community. We shouldn't be surprised by this. Let's remember where we started. Eli's sons did not know God. They didn't have a deep faithful relationship with God. So it's no surprise that they're sexually immoral, that they're sleeping with the subordinates, with these female temple workers who are just going there to serve God and they're being taken advantage of in this way. No surprise. Unfaithfulness to God will tend to lead to unfaithfulness to others. And it's abusive. Abusive leadership has this tendency to be immoral and, and especially when it happens in this way, it's especially poisonous to our understanding of what it is to follow God. The last tendency, worth mentioning here, the last tendency of abusive leadership is passiveness. Abusive leadership will create a culture where people are greedy, they're immoral, they're sexually immoral, and no one says anything about it. In fact, it's covered up. In fact, conditions are created to allow it to flourish, to allow it to continue. Eli here is the main culprit on this one. So notice, Eli, he's been hearing about this and he confronts them. We're told in verses 23 to 25, he says, look, your offenses are direct your actions are a direct offense against God. Like, it's one thing if you're doing things against other people, but this is directly against God what you're doing. But we're told it doesn't work. If you look at verse 25, it says his sons don't listen to him. And why is that? Because God was already done with him. It is possible to go so far and so long in rebellion against God where God's like, okay, like, now you're done. <laughs> that's what's happened here. God has basically already judged him. And so that's why it says, like, God says, oh, you know, I'm not going to even give you that chance now. You already had plenty of chances for a long time, multiple years, and you haven't done it. So they'll be facing deadly consequences for their abusive leadership. But, again, what we're looking at here is particularly Eli. And notice what happens here with Eli, what Eli does. Eli confronts them, and he's confronted them really after hearing about this for a while. This has been going on for a while. This is not just like, oh, I just heard about this, and now I'm going to talk to them. You know, early in verse 22, he says, Eli kept hearing all that his sons were doing to all of Israel. So he's been hearing about this for a while, and then he brings it up with them in verses 23 and 24. He says, why do you do such things? I hear of your evil doings from all these people. Know my sons, it is no good report that I hear the people of the Lord spreading about. This has been going on for so long, everybody knows about it. It's on all the social media. <laughs> it's all over the place, right? Everyone knows about this happening. It's been going on enough that the word has spread everywhere. So Eli knows it's bad. 
But Eli really doesn't, basically it tells us that Eli has not done anything about it for a while. And then when he talks to them about it, what does he do here? He warns them, but doesn't fire them, right? Doesn't remove them, doesn't say you're done. He warns them, he knows they're abusive. He knows they're greedy. He knows they're sleeping with the women who are trying to faithfully serve the Lord there at the temple. They're taking advantage of them. And he talks to them about it. But basically, he continue, I mean, after this, it looks like they continue to do what they were doing. He didn't remove them. We're told in verse 13, uh, uh, verse 13 of chapter 3, the next chapter, God is talking to Samuel. And he says this comment about Eli. He says, his sons were blaspheming God and he did not restrain them. He did not restrain them. Eli is the chief priest. He's the, the main leader for Israel. And yet he's passive. So that's why he's abusive as well. Abusive leadership is passive. Wrong things are happening and nobody does anything about it. In fact, they even go along with it. They create the conditions where it continues to happen and maybe even happen in worse ways. So greed, immorality, passiveness, these are all tendencies of abusive leadership, of abusive culture. And what I'm describing here is not something that like, you're like, I've never heard this before, Ramon. I mean, <laughs> if anything, there's probably names and institutions that are coming to mind right now. We look in our political institutions, we look in certain places, certain schools, we look in our professional sports teams, all over the place, what I'm describing are things we see now. Things right in front of us. But what's sad is, what I'm describing also is things we see in the church. We see it in our churches, we see it in our parachurch ministries. And, and that one especially hurts because it's like, those are the places where you think we should especially be attuned to this. That it's just that, if any place that shouldn't happen, it's there. That's why it's even all the w more worse. In some ways, it's worse effect <laughs> when it happens in those places. I've read multiple stories now, and there's probably, I won't name names, but like there's churches, parachurch ministries that are coming to mind right now. And we realize like this is what we describe here was what was happening. There's been greed. Uh, people taking a whole lot of money for themselves, way more than they should, with no accountability, spending it on frivolous things, on clothes and desi designer clothes and, and more and, and cars and private jets and all these different things, right? All this stuff in themselves. And even using those who serve them, who work under them, taking advantage of them, having them do things that they shouldn't be doing. They're not a part of their job, but making them do more for themselves. Again, that's greed is what we're talking about, isn't it? What's interesting is it's never enough. In these stories, it's always, always like, well, I have this, but I need more. I need better. I deserve more. I deserve better. We see in churches and parachurch ministries immorality, people sleeping with others in their church and the ministry and, and using their power and their authority to say, hey, you know, have the implication being have a relationship with me and you'll get that promotion. You'll get that coveted spot in the church. What's even worse is in some of these cases, we're seeing people who are coming to the church, coming to the parachurch ministry for help. Come help me, give me counsel. And they're taking advantage of sexually. Of course, we see passiveness. One of the things that, that's most remarkable in these stories is um, almost never do you hear a story like, oh, this is the first time we heard about this. <laughs> people know. It's common knowledge that there's greed and immorality happening. Things are brought up, but at the worst it's a slap on the wrist. Many times it's, well, let's keep things going. Let's keep it moving. There's ministry to do. There's, there's, there's new things to start. There's buildings to build and, and 
more things to fund and more attention to come. And what they're doing is bad, but look what God is doing. Again, we're, a lot of us are familiar with these stories. Uh, examples come to mind. And, and I think what's sad about this, about this, what abusive leadership is, and these tendencies of abusive leadership, the greed, immorality, the passiveness, is what it does to, to obviously what it does in, in the hearts and souls of those who are doing it, but what it does in communities and the people who are experiencing it. I think the saddest thing I, I, I read these days is people, and maybe, I know, I know some of you here, <laughs> and like maybe it's your first Sunday and you're just like, is this a safe place? I don't know. <laughs> I, um, I hope it is. Uh, but I understand that in many respects, um, you are almost, almost feels like you're irreparably harmed when you, in a community, and, and when you're experiencing, and it's one thing to experiencing it out in sort of the world and the culture, and it hurts. I see people, you know, maybe you voted for, or teachers you sat under, or coaches, or other things, these experiences you wanted to, you hope you were going to get, and you didn't get. That hurts. But especially, because what, what really hurts here is sort of the hypocrisy of saying, yes, I'm going to help you know and follow God, and yet you experience the same things you can experience anywhere else. And the result of that in people's lives is distrust, it's cynicism, it's depression. In some cases, it's suicidal thoughts, it's eating disorders, it's all these things. It manifests itself. What happens when people fall into this abusive leadership, it hurts you not just sort of spiritually, it affects your ability to relate to God, but it, help, it hurts you psychologically, it hurts you physically, it hurts you in every area of your life. We should not be surprised by that. Because that's how deep it cuts. Remember, how did this happen? This all flowed from the first verse we saw, verse 12. Now, the sons of Eli were worthless men. They did not know the Lord. Here's the thing. It is possible to be Christian and not be godly. It is possible to be Christian in the sense that, like, you grew up as a Christian, right? And you like the Christian stuff. You like the Christian culture. You, you like the music, right? Or you like people who sort of in that vibe. You like there's a kind of culture that goes along with being Christian. It is possible to be those things and yet not know God at all. Not have any real relationship with God. Not really know and trust God. It's possible over time to really know the Bible well, to live really well as a Christian, culturally speaking. You're, you're, you're in the groove. You're in with everyone else and yet be completely disconnected from God to the point that you have all these other things going on in your life, going on in our community, greed, immorality, and passiveness, and we excuse it. We dismiss it. We, we, we let it stay there. So this is what's happening with Eli's family. This will not go unnoticed by God. God acts. And so we're told here in verse 17, Thus the sin of the young men was very great in the sight of the Lord, for the men treated the offering of the Lord with contempt. God is seeing this. It's like this foul stench in the nostrils of God. So God is going to directly confront this. And when we read in our passage, he, he sends a prophet to speak to, the, to Eli. And this prophet is speaking on behalf of God, and he's, he tells him, look, he reminds him, Eli, remember, I called your family to be priests, specially called them to represent God before me, to represent the people before me. That of all the families in Israel, you were chosen to come, minister before me, stand in the holiest place in Israel. Lead the people to me. Your family was called to do that. And that's what makes what they did so terrible. Eli's sons are responsible, but Eli himself, as the chief priest, is especially responsible. Because one of the things we should mention, Eli, as we just said, Eli knew the Bible, right? It's not like he knew God, right? He knew how to pray to God. He knew how to pray for other people. 
And yet, here's the heart of what he, where he came to at this point. I don't know if he started this place. A lot of times people don't start here, but clearly at some point something went off. And he's ended up in this place in his old age. He's passive. The abuse is continuing. And even worse, what the prophet says here seems to imply that Eli was benefiting from what was happening too. Verse 29, he says, why then, so the prophet speaking to Eli, he says, why then do you scorn my sacrifices and my offerings that I commanded for my dwelling and honor your sons above me by fattening yourselves on the choicest parts of every offering of my people Israel? So they're, like I said before, they're choosing the best parts of themselves, but no, it's a plural here. It's not just, he says, not your sons are doing this. You too, you're getting fat off of this. And later on in, um, in 1 Samuel, it mentions that Eli is fat, right, which implies like, yeah, he's, he's, where's those extra calories coming from? Let's put it that way. Those extra calories are coming from his sons bringing the meat that Eli knows they should not bring. And he, I can't even tell him, like, yeah, oh, this is not good. But hey, pass, pass the plate. I'll have another. So God finally says, enough. Eli and his family are going to be removed from serving. Even more, his family line is going to come to an end. And Eli is going to know this happens when both his sons are going to die on the same day. We'll, we'll read about that coming up in, in 1 Samuel. Now, this is a severe judgment, no doubt. But let's remember what we're talking about here. Abusive spiritual leadership, disgracing the worship of God, violating people's relationship with God in this way. That's a serious thing. It's a warning, isn't it? It's a warning. It's a warning coming from all those, all those many years ago when this was written. A warning that travels through the ages to us today. God is known as a doormat. He will not be mocked. Let's remember, this, this thing we call like following God, this thing we call about like being a Christian, let's, let's, let's always remember this. At the heart of it, it's not just knowing about God. You've heard me say this many times here over the years at Roosevelt. It's knowing God, isn't it? It's knowing God. And to know God, if you really know him, will look a certain way. Don't use the words. I know God, I follow God, I'm a Christian. Don't use the words if these things aren't true in your life. If you use the words, it will always result in these things, in humility, in love, in faithfulness, in service. That's how you know that you know God. Because God always lives in that space of love and humility and faithfulness. It will always result in that in the people and in the leaders who lead those people. That's what it looks like to know God. True holiness will not look like how much you do for God. True holiness will always look like how much you love God and love others. That is what it looks like to be holy. That is what a moral person looks like. It will always look this way. I like this quote from uh, Thomas A. Kempis. He writes this. What would it profit us to know the whole Bible by heart and the principles of all the philosophers if we live without the grace and the love of God. Vanity, vanity is in all is vanity, except to love God and serve him alone. Here's a spiritual head check. And it's, it's, it's to ask this kind of question, where am I living? Where am I living? Am I living in a place that shows God's grace and love? Where I see it and I'm experiencing it and I'm demonstrating it. To the degree in which there's grace and love, there's faithfulness in your life. That tells you something about where you're living. It tells you how close God is to you. It means you're right there in the throne room. You're right there with him. If that's not there, then there's other things happening. It puts you in danger, doesn't it? It puts you in danger of the things we talked about, greed and immorality and passiveness. The reality is those things are always been big, they're big, temptations, they're big temptations. They're always tendencies in our heart or soul to say, I want more for myself. 
a tendency in my heart and soul to say, I know here's the standard, but I want this to be my standard instead, even though it goes against directly what God says. There's always tendencies for us to ignore things and overlook things, especially if it doesn't affect us, especially if we're benefiting from it. There's always tendencies for those things to happen. The way we know those things won't grow in our hearts, in our community, is if we are always asking that question, do we know God, and does it show itself in grace and love and faithfulness to God and to one another? This is what we want to move towards. How do we know God? How do we live in that space of his grace and his love? And of course, we talk about this. <laughs> Anytime we talk about living in the space of God's grace and love, we're talking about Jesus, aren't we? We are talking about Jesus. So that's why the, the end of this passage, I think, is helpful to us. We want to move in a position that helps us know God. Well, here's the North Star for us. Where is Jesus? And how do we step into his grace and love? The, last, uh, the second to last verse in our passage, verse 35, says this. And I will, this is still the prophet talking to Eli, and he tells him this. And I will raise up for myself a faithful priest who shall do according to what is in my heart and in my mind. And I will build him a sure house, and he shall go in and out before my anointed forever. So God intends to have another priest, uh, another family take over from Eli and his family. And initially you might think this is Samuel, but Samuel ends up really becoming more of a prophet for Israel. So it seems like during the reign of King David, let's say at least literally this was uh, happened through uh, Zadok, his family steps in and Eli's family is out of the picture completely. But anytime you read the Bible, the Bible intentionally sort of has these echoes, especially the language that's used here. This idea of a faithful priest, someone who's gonna go before my anointed forever. Right? No human being can do that. When we talk about forever and, and really true faithfulness, what we're looking at here is something more than this. What we're looking at here is Jesus, isn't it? That ultimately, he is the faithful priest who's able to perfectly and forever represent us before God. Jesus is, in Hebrews 12, 17, 2.17, <coughs> the merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God who makes propitiation for the sins of the people. What we have with Jesus is the priest who comes before God, the Father, and it's able to clear us of all our sinful tendencies, all the things that do get us in the way, that do come in the way of us knowing God and loving God, knowing people and loving people. Jesus is the one who actually is able to stand there and is faithful. He's never abusive. He's never thinking first of himself. He's always thinking of us. He's always seeking to know us and to love us and bring us into close communion with him and with God. He's the one who's able to stand before God and provide a way for us to know God and stay in that place because he actually fulfills both roles in this promise. He's a faithful priest, but he's also the anointed one. He's the king that's mentioned here. That anointed one is a reference to a king. And initially, you might think it's two different people. There's gonna be a faithful priest and an anointed king. And God says, actually, I have one person who can do both. He's the priest who represents us, but he's also the king, Jesus, who now establishes a kingdom where faithfulness to God will always live, where love of God is always there. We always live in that place of his grace and of his love and faithfulness. We need to know God. We need to know God if we're to be faithful in the ways that he calls us to. And to know God, we do that by following Jesus. And following Jesus, we move away from abusiveness and all that it brings, and we move instead into this relationship of love at the very heart of what God calls us to of knowing him, love of God and love of others. So when we think of leaders, and I, I'm going to tell you, when we think of leaders in general, 
This is what we should want. I'm talking about all our leaders. This is what it should look like. And when it's not that way, we should not be passive. We should not be dismissive. We should not say, well, it's okay for some of you not to be this way. What we should look for always in our leaders, but especially our spiritual leaders, is do they care about knowing God? (laughs) And that shows itself, not in greed, but in service to others. Not immorality, but a love of God and others. Not in passiveness, but a willingness to stand up for what's right and just. This is what we should want in our communities, especially in our spiritual communities. And may that result then in great good among us. When we care about that for those who lead us and stand over us, then we care about it at the very smallest level. You care about it in your family. You care about it in your your marriage. You care about it in your workplace. You care about it in all these different places because love of God and love of others out of a knowledge of God matters in all those places so that the word spreads in our areas, in our spaces, not that God's people are known for being just like everyone else. May the word spread that we are known for knowing God, knowing God, and it's shown in the grace and love that only has come to us in and through Jesus. Would you pray with me? Lord God, thank you for this time and for the opportunity to be together, Lord, and Lord, for what, um, in one sense, is depressing, Lord, there's a lot of abuse of leadership because there's a lot of greed and immorality and passiveness. <laughs> and we see it, Lord, even in the places that are closest to us, in our churches, in our parachurch ministries. And so, Lord, we confess our, yet again, <laughs> how we as your people fail to live up to what you call us to. We confess it, Lord, but seek your repentance, seek to repent and change And we know those words can ring true because, Jesus, you've provided a way for that to happen. That, Lord, we don't have to wait for a high priest who can lead us to you. We have one already in Jesus. We don't have to wait for a kingdom to come. Your kingdom is already here now. And even as we wait for it to fully manifest manifest itself. And so it's in that place, then, we confess our sin and ask you to call us back to knowing you and living in grace and love. Help us, Lord God, to be diligent to call out our sin, to call it the places where we blaspheme your name by how we abuse one another. And Lord, instead, fill us, Lord. Fill us with a deep sense of what it is to to be in a relationship with you where we hear your voice and we're drawn to it, where we speak your truth and live by it, where we're known, Lord, for love and grace and humility. Knowing, Lord God, that these things that we talk about are not Evidences of a weak community or weak leaders, Lord, they're evidences of divine power and strength. They're evidences of the things that we know will last forever. So may we live in that space, knowing this is only possible in the name of your son. And it's in his name we do pray.